0: All right, so we continue on our Baptist faith and message study. Um, Last week we looked at baptism, so we're in the section on the ordinances. And so one thing, um, one of the big things that distinguish Protestant Christianity from Roman Catholicism is the number of sacraments um, that we hold to. Uh, The Roman Catholic tradition is that there are seven sacraments. And then as Protestants, we we say that there are are only two sacraments or ordinances. There are only two things that the Lord Jesus has uh, given for us to do and commanded us to do as a body of the local church. And those two are a baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, as Baptists, uh, historically Baptists have preferred to call them ordinances um, as opposed to um, sacraments um, in order to distance ourselves from the view that um, these uh, ceremonies work in a power of themselves and, a, and something apart from our faith. Um, so Baptists have historically called them ordinances, um, although you will find um, some differences there, but the Baptist and faith Baptist faith and message calls them ordinances, and i 'm happy to call them that as well and so tonight we 'll be looking at the lord 's Supper so i don 't know how many of you grew up in a uh, Southern Baptist Church. Uh, raise your hand if you grew up in a Southern Baptist Church, most of us all right um, so I remember as a kid um, going to church, and I believe our church, looking back, it was probably a church that observed communion about once a quarter, probably. And we weren't regular uh, church attenders, and so we probably missed a couple of those. And so it was a, a, probably a once or twice a year thing. And, and, and I don't remember, I always thought it was like a hands-on lesson on the passage of Scripture where we see the Last Supper. So I always saw it as like a hands-on lesson on the Last Supper and not something um, distinguished from that um, that has a benefit for us as well. Um, so I was always confused by that. And it was always, you know, the formal with the tablecloths and there was like, like there was a body under there or something like that. Um, so I, I did not understand it as a kid. Did not understand it. And there wasn't much benefit from that. Um, but as we, you look into the Word and you learn from... Uh, the history of the church, you see that the the Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing uh, that we get to participate in together. Um, And so my prayer tonight is that as we look more closely into exactly what is going on and what is the Lord's Supper, um, that it won't be just some hands-on ceremony that you observe passively, but it'll be something that you hunger for, that you long for, and that you participate in actively. And so that is our my heart's desire tonight as we, we look into this. So the Lord's Supper has a few other names that you'll hear it called by. Um, communion is one, and that comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 16, where it's a, a communion or a participation or a fellowship in the body and blood of Jesus. Or Eucharist, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, where it says that Jesus gave thanks, that's Eucharisto uh, in the Greek, uh, which means thanksgiving, And so each name emphasizes a different characteristic or different aspect of the ordinance. It's not something completely different. Um, Sometimes when we hear words like Eucharist, we think we, our mind automatically goes to to Roman Catholicism. That word's kind of been stolen from us. It's a beautiful thing that we should be thankful. We should give thanks for the body and blood of Jesus Christ that was given for us. Um, So each thing emphasizes a different aspect. So the Lord's Supper Calling it the Lord's Supper emphasizes the the spiritual nourishment, it's a meal, it's something that fills us, and sustains us. It emphasizes the spiritual nourishment that it brings. Communion emphasizes our fellowship and our participation, that koinonia um, with Christ and with one another. And like I said, Eucharist emphasizes our thankfulness for Jesus. So these are all great and beautiful terms for the same thing. But tonight I will be referring to it as the Lord's Supper. So as we look at the Baptist faith and message, if you have the copy um, in front of you, we're going to read that real quick. It says, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming the Lord's Supper. So we're gonna start and break that down, what it is. First, it's a symbolic act of obedience. This act was instituted by Jesus himself. We see in the gospels where the last meal and the celebration of the Passover, he, he institutes this uh, thing that would be an abiding ordinance, an abiding ritual um, from, until the time of his return. Jesus himself started this tradition and has called us to observe it as well. And that's one of the reasons we call it an ordinance. We want to stress that this is something that Jesus uh, commands of us to do, to observe in obedience to him. uh, We need to observe this. But I wanna address the word ordinance real quick because for people like me who are naturally inclined to uh, run away from any sort of authoritative Thing. I think it's a product of my generation where we hear something like ordinance, that sounds like power and authority and we wanna run from that and it's like oppressive. So we think, why would Jesus command us to do this? Um, it's an ordinance, this is something, it's like a wall, like I can't turn my radio up loud enough for the city, uh, police are gonna come Maybe turn my radio down. Is that what Jesus is trying to do? Um, that's an ordinance, right? And so I want us to understand that Jesus's commands are never meant to stifle our joy. He's never trying to get us to turn our radio down so we can't party. Jesus' commands lead us into the fullness of joy. His ordinances are not a means of cursing, but a means of grace that help us to know and experience him more fully. I was explaining this to my three-year-old and he did not understand this yesterday, that whenever mommy and daddy tells you not to do something, it's not because we don't want you to have fun. It's because we love you and we care about you and we don't want you to get hurt. Jesus' commands are the same way. He loves us, he cares for us. He doesn't want us to get hurt, he wants to bless us. He wants to lead us by uh, still waters and into green pastures. I don't know if you believe this, but Jesus is more willing to bless you than you are willing to be blessed by him. His heart is that big. So Brian addressed this last week kind of um, when he was talking about how baptism isn't necessary um, for salvation, but it's something that you should do in order to, to walk in full obedience to Jesus. And my answer to that question looks like this. When people say, if baptism and the Lord's Supper aren't necessary for salvation, why do them? And my answer to that is because God wants to bless you through them. When Jesus instituted these rites for the church, he was inviting us to truly taste and see that he is good in a mysterious way that's only possible through these elements which he has consecrated. So why would you keep yourself from closer communion with him? That is my answer. is a symbolic act of obedience. And the fact that it is symbolic, the fact that it's an act of obedience does not diminish the fact that it is a great blessing and a wonderful gift that God has given us. So now that we kind of understand that it's a symbolic act of obedience, let's look at the symbols. And so what I want us to do here is turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to pull the Bible out in front of you there in the P-rack, um, it should be on page nine hundred and fifty eight. So these are these are Paul's instructions to uh, the church in Corinth. This book is 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 Paul addressing uh, wrongly ordered worship in the church? and is probably uh, the first instructions for the Lord's Supper. Uh, recorded in the Bible. So uh, we realize that this isn't an epistle, comes after the Gospels in our Bibles, but Corinthians uh, was most likely written before or at the same time as the Gospel of Mark. And so we're talking about a very early uh, description of the Lord's Supper, and it's a wonderful testament to the truthfulness of Scripture that this description matches so closely with the other Gospels. If you're familiar with this passage. But what we'll do tonight is we'll start in verse 23 of chapter 11. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So we may not be condemned along with the world. So then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So here we see the description. And what was going on in Corinth was uh, there was divisions in the church. There was different factions who were kind of warring one with one another. And when they would observe the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the more wealthy, the people who could get there quicker, you know, they would come and they would have a great feast and they would, they would drink a little too much wine and they would be getting uh, drunk on the wine before even the Lord's Supper was observed. And so by the time the Lord's Supper gets here, um, the poor who are coming along are going away hungry and, and those who are abusing it are going away filled and there is the Lord's Supper. And so what Paul is telling them is by coming and gathering together to take the Lord's Supper, you're doing more harm than good. So I wonder if that is our gathering sometimes. If we, when we come together, are we doing more harm than we are doing good because of our relationships with one another? That's the warning that we have here, that no, we are to come together in unity and to be patient and to wait on one another and to enjoy this meal um, together. So that's the context, but what we wanna look at is just what are the symbols? What's the symbolism? Um, So if you believe that something more than mere symbolism, uh, this isn't gonna change tonight. Um, so it's, it's, it's nothing less than a symbol. It may be something more, but it's nothing less than a symbol. So first, what are the symbols? Bread. Bread representing the broken body of Christ. So what is bread? In this context, bread was a staple food. So you know what a staple food is? A, a staple is what you need to eat to survive, right? In um, and, and certain cultures, this is in most of the world probably, that staple is rice, right? That was my house growing up. We had rice with every single thing. Like if you didn't have rice on your plate, like it wasn't a complete meal growing up, um, which makes doing like whole 30 or paleo really difficult for me. But in Palestine, the staple foods would have been bread and fish. In ancient Palestine, bread and fish would have been the staple food. So if you didn't have bread, you didn't have fish, you didn't live. And Jesus uses this significance to point to himself that if you don't have me, there is no life. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So one of the significances of being bread is that Jesus gives life. And if you wanna flip over in your Bible to John 6, this is another kind of long passage we're gonna read. John 6, starting in verse 47, which is on page 892. <clears throat> and if you want proof that we live in a fallen world, pollen, pollen and allergies in February. John 6, verse 47. So Jesus is in this long discourse with the Pharisees about where he came from, essentially. Who, who are you? where did you come from? verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Notice that whoever believes, believes is key here. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven So Jesus is saying, I'm the bread that comes from heaven, not like the manna that your fathers ate and they died in the wilderness. When you eat me, you will live forever. And so uh, this is the, the, the key passage that the uh, Roman Catholics use to support transubstantiation, which means that the elements, the bread and wine, literally become the body and blood of Jesus when the priest issues the words of consecration. And they would say that Jesus is saying here, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then there is no life in you. And so they take that quite literally. And that's one of the reasons why excommunication in the Roman Catholic Church is a big deal because you're taking away from the flesh and blood of Jesus that provides life. But we remember, remember what I pointed out right at the beginning. What does he say in verse 47? Whoever believes has eternal life. And so, um, what it looks like to, to feed in, upon Jesus is, is, is believing in him and feeding upon him in your spirits and being, abiding in him. <clears throat> so what is food? What, I mean, think about food. Like, what is food? What makes food distinct from anything else in the world? Food is something that was once alive that has been killed in order that something else can live. That is food. I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter what you've eaten. It was once living, unless it was like salt. And that's like the only thing that we eat that wasn't once living. Food, in order to, to live, we need food, which means something has to die. We're, we're so disconnected from that in our urban culture, where when you ask our, our children, where do food come from? And they'll say it comes from Publix you know, the grocery store and it's nicely, neatly wrapped. There's no blood, it's nice and clean and pretty. But ancient Palestine, they knew exactly where food came from, it came from the ground. It came from the animals. I think it's very important to reconnect our, our, ourselves with the earth and with our food because it teaches a, a, a powerful lesson, powerful lesson that in order for us to live, there has to be sacrificial death That's the nature of living in a fallen world. And Jesus is saying, in order to live by me, like I'm coming, I'm promising eternal life. That sounds all good, right? The disciples were all on board to that. But every time Jesus took it to Jerusalem, that, hey, the son of man is going to have to suffer and die at the hands of ungodly men. The disciples didn't like that. We're like, no, you you can't die. You're supposed to give us eternal life. Jesus says, I'm food, I'm bread. In order for you to live by me, I have to die. It's a very powerful symbol. And it's a great way to disciple our kids and disciple ourselves when we eat this food, when we realize that, hey, something had to die for me to live. Jesus had to die for us to live. The next symbol we see here is a, is a powerful insight that I learned from Ligon Duncan and Derek Kidner this week that I've never heard before, and I think it's powerful. That in the instituting of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is reversing the work of the serpent in the garden. In Genesis 3, we see that Eve took and ate the forbidden fruit that casted all of creation under the curse of death. And in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is undoing that curse. No longer are the words, take and eat, verbs of cursing and death. No, (laughs) through the suffering of the Son of God, they become verbs of blessing and salvation so that every time we observe the Lord's Supper and the minister says, take and eat, all of you. It's Jesus undoing the words of cursing and blessing his church through them. It's a powerful image. So consider the body of the Lord in the bread that we eat, sent from heaven without the leaven of sin, who's beaten and broken, and thrown into the furnace of God's wrath that we may eat and live. And there's one last thing in the bread that is symbolic and it's not of Christ's literal body, but of his body here on earth, the church. First Corinthians ten seventeen says, "'Because there is one bread, "'we who are many are one body, "'for we all partake of the one bread.'" So not only is the Lord's Supper pointing us to our participation and communion and fellowship with Christ through his body, but with one another through his body. And I say this often in the context of reconciliation, that when we were reconciled to God vertically, we were also reconciled to one another horizontally because we're all connected to the same source. This is what theologians call union with Christ, that we are united to Christ. We are in him and there's only one Christ. And if we are all united to the same Christ, then by necessity, we are all united together. That's why there's nothing that separates us. It's because we are united to the same savior. We are all getting our life from the same source, the same bread. You know, uh, all the grains of wheat that are spread across the fields are gathered and baked into one loaf. And that's us. We're gathered from all different backgrounds, all different areas, all different corners of the world, gathered into one loaf. And in 1 Corinthians 10 and in the Gospels, when Jesus says, broken for you, this is the bread broken for you, the you in that is plural. I always say it would be very helpful. This is one place where the King James is, is helpful because it has the these and the vowels that separate the plural and singular. I think you could just say you and y'all. Um, but this would be a place where Jesus would say y'all. You know, the bread is broken for y'all. And I think that's one thing in our, in our consumeristic world where, where you can go to Lifeway and buy your own little uh, communion packets to take with you everywhere you go. The Lord's Supper was never meant to be an individual thing. It was plural broken for you, for the church, for us together. And so the Lord's Supper is about the body of Christ, the corporate body of Christ. So that's the bread. Consider the bread of life, Jesus. Next is the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine represents the blood of the covenant. So Jesus' blood would mark the beginning of the new covenant, right? When he, when he says, take, this is the new covenant in my blood, when he gives them the cup. Every time you entered into a covenant in the ancient days, there would be shedding of blood um, And then we see um, in in the nation of Israel, whenever there would be a renewal of the covenant, a renewal, think about renewing wedding vows. Um, It's the same covenant, you're just making it fresh and new. Uh, The nation of Israel would do this occasionally, um, renewing their vows to the Lord. Typically after times of of falling away and repentance, there would be this renewal um, of the vows and the people would be sprinkled with blood, marking them out. Jesus saying that this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, this blood covers and cleanses your sins. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, I don't know if you know this, but every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are renewing our covenant with the Lord. And he is renewing his covenant with us, right? In baptism, he promises to us, as sure as you went under that water and came out of the water, by faith, I will hold you fast. That that death is, in Christ is your death. And that resurrection in Christ is your resurrection. He promises that to us in baptism. And that's a one-time covenant entrance. That's a sign of entering into the covenant. And in the, in the Lord's Supper, he reminds us. It's a repetitive uh, covenant renewal ceremony where we are saying to him, I am trusting in your promises and I pledge to, to follow you at all costs because you Your body was broken for us, for me. Your blood was poured out for me. And he's saying to us, this blood covers you, cleanses you. It's it's for you. It's all you need to live. It's your bread. It is your drink. It sustains you, fulfills you. Every single time. And he doesn't get tired of it. He loves it. So why does the Baptist faith and message say the fruit of the vine and not wine? Or Welch's, because in the Gospels Jesus says fruit of the vine. He uses that term, and this is the only place in the Bible where that term is used. Fruit of the vine um, in in the three Synoptic Gospels. Everywhere else, it's referred to as the cup or the fruit of the vine. Um, Fruit of the vine. We don't see that in the Old Testament, and so what a lot of people will say is that it's distinguishing um, the type of beverage that was in the cup. Um, And I think this is an element of symbolism. First. Uh, this isn't, Jesus didn't invent this term uh, just because it's the first place in the Bible. It's not the first place in religious literature. So the term or the phrase fruit of the vine appears multiple times in the Talmud. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Talmud, but it was the, the Jewish rabbinical uh, manual sort of, that came out in the intertestamental period. So the rabbis at this time were operating through the Talmud. That's why Jesus is always um, getting on to him about following the traditions of men and, and neglecting the word of God. Um, but in the Talmud, um, fruit of the vine is, is a common expression that's used to uh, sacred feasts, such as Passover. It's referring to the wine that was used at the, the Passover and other sacred feasts. So it had been something that the rabbis, which Jesus was a rabbi, would have been familiar with. So he's not inventing something new, but there is significance in the fact that it is fruit of the vine. First, remember, this was established in the celebration of Passover. And so what is Passover, right? Passover is the remembrance of the Lord delivering his people from Egypt. And check this out. Psalm 80, verse eight says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. So in the Old Testament, we see Israel referred to as a vine. And he, he brought the vine out of Egypt, right? The Passover, and what did he do? He drove out the nations. We've been talking about that in Judges. Drove out the nations and planted that vine in the promised land. Later, Jesus comes along and he says that I'm the vine. He says that I'm the fulfillment of all that Israel was. All that Israel was doing was preserving uh, the lineage so that I would come and redeem my people. Jesus says in John 15, verses five and six, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So Jesus is saying, I am the vine, right? And I think it's significant that the fruit of the vine is what he chooses to be the symbol here, is that Jesus is saying, what I produce, what comes out of me is eternal life. Those who are connected to me, who abide in me have eternal life. But do we remember how wine is made? The grapes are crushed, right? But in order for you to have this eternal life, I must be crushed. In fact, the vine dresser himself God the Father must crush me beneath his feet in the winepress of his wrath. And so we drink the fruit of the vine to remind us that the source of life, those of us who abide in him, who who drink of his blood, have eternal life because he was crushed to satisfy the wrath that our sins uh, deserved. So there is poetic and symbolic significance in even this phrase. So don't even overlook that. It's trying to teach us something, trying to show us something. So that's the fruit of the vine. I wanted to talk about this, I forgot about this. Uh, When I was talking about it being a covenant renewal ceremony, don't hear that as being a repeated sacrifice. There's a difference. The covenant renewal in the Old Testament was a repeated sacrifice. But what we have is not a a repeated sacrifice. That's why the Mass is a different thing altogether from the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. The Mass is not another way to observe the Lord's Supper. The Mass is a a abominable blasphemy. What the Mass is is a propitiatory sacrifice that It's supposed to remove sin. It's another sacrifice of Jesus Christ that is repeated every single time the priest invites him to come into the elements and to uh, be consecrated. That's not at all what we're talking about. When I say covenant renewal, cast that as far from your mind as possible because the, the words from Hebrews 10, 10 through 18 could not be more clear. He says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is the forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So if you're coming to the Lord's table to satisfy sins that you've committed in the week, that when you uh, take that bread and you dip it into the cup and you eat, that somehow that's paying for your sins by you doing that. That is the wrong view. That is, that is an unworthy manner of taking the Lord's Supper because Christ has been sacrificed once. What we are doing is we are remembering that one time sacrifice. We are remembering we are renewing based on our memory of past events and our participation by via the Holy Spirit in those events in reality. So that's not what it is. It is not a repeated sacrifice. It is a covenant renewal ceremony. So remember the blood of our Lord in the cup that cleanses us of all unrighteousness, which purchases us from the bondage of sin and gives us eternal life. So... The symbolic ceremony is a memorial, right? The confession says, through the partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the redeemer. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Like, can you think about what that says about us? That we have to remember the son of God who temporarily set aside his glory to suffer on the earth in order to save us from his eternal wrath. Like we would forget that and yet we do, we forget it. And and from from Sunday to Sunday, we we, we can forget, right? We get focused on other things and we we forget. And Jesus in his grace and his patience, he's given us a ceremony, a liturgy in which we're forced to remember him. He says, do this. Often, as you take this, do it in remembrance of me. And so, I wanted to point this out as well that a memorial, it is a memorial. We were remembering the Lord, but it's not a funeral. It's not a funeral. It's serious, but not shameful. We're remembering the sin bearer and not our sin. I think this is one reason why historically, there has been a neglect of the Lord's Supper is because we we take the memorial aspect and we take the the seriousness aspect and we turn it into a shame fest where we remember our sin and we wallow in our sin and then we come shamefully to take the supper. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, remember, my body was broken for you. I bore your sin. I bore your shame. It's gone. Come, feast, feast. Take the bread, drink of the cup that gladdens the heart. So it's a memorial, we are remembering, and it is serious, a serious time, but it's not shameful. Come, Christian, in faith, with a glad heart that your Redeemer has bore your sin. Celebrate with him. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. 26, he says, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so the Lord's Supper is also a preaching of the gospel. Uh, I, believe, I believe it was St. Augustine, maybe, I think it was, St. Augustine who said um, that the sacraments are visible words. And this is, uh, we, uh, we can say the ordinances are visible words. So they're a preaching of the gospel visibly. So in baptism, we see the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ played out before our eyes, and in the Lord's Supper, we see the broken body and the blood pouring out of Jesus. We see that visibly in, the, in visible words, and so the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the Lord's death. It's a preaching of the gospel, and so the Lord's Supper can even be an evangelistic time for unbelievers, and who we'll talk about later, um, who are uh, separated from the table. It's even a time for them to see the gospel because the death of Christ is being proclaimed in that And notice it says, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this isn't an eternal, it's not an eternal ordinance. This is something that's temporary, that gets us between the time of his death until the time that he returns. And that's the last phrase of the uh, statement that says, we anticipate his second coming. Because remember, I said it's a memorial, not a funeral. Why is it not a funeral? Because he's alive. Jesus is alive. It's not his funeral, He's, he's not dead, he was resurrected he's alive. And we are taking the supper in anticipation of his second coming. Jesus himself, he says this in, in at the end um, of Matthew 26, where he institutes the Lord's supper. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So not only are we looking back to the cross when we take the Lord's Supper, but we are also looking forward to the day in which we will uh, partake in the marriage feast together with him where we'll drink the cup anew with him in glory and he will serve us himself. Can you believe that? In Luke twelve thirty seven, he tells us the parable of the, the, the marriage feast. And he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. I guess while we sing brethren, we have come to worship because of that last stand. It says Christ will gird himself and serve us. Holy man, all around. And... I heard Ligon Duncan, he, he pointed this out in the same thing that I learned the earlier thing. He was saying that someone was like, does this mean that Jesus is going to serve us in heaven? Like, shouldn't we be serving him? I mean, he is God after all, and he's our savior after all. He says, did you ever think that there would be a time that you didn't need to be served by your savior? There's not a time that we don't need to be served by our savior. He loves to do it. He loves to do it. In heaven, we will have a great feast. And we are rehearsing this every time we take the Lord's Supper. We are rehearsing this moment where the marriage feast of the Lamb, Christ Himself will gird us, gird Himself, and serve us. And even now, when we come to the Lord's table, He is serving us, He's reminding us benefits of my body, the benefits of my blood are yours. He's helping us. So when we take the Lord's Supper, are you awaiting his return and expecting to be served by the Lord of glory? Like, is it something that you look forward to? Is it something that you need, you long for, to be served by your Savior of his body and blood? So, Those are the symbols. And there's this one qualifying statement in the confession that we need to talk about. And that's where it says, whereby members of the church, through partaking the bread and fruit of the vine. So it's limiting who is eligible to receive and to take from the Lord's supper. Members of the church. Again, this is a place where the statement is a little bit open, leave some wiggle room because different churches uh, hold different uh, positions on what members of the church means. We all agree that it's members of the church. The question is, is it big C church, little C church? Is it the universal church, like all Christians? Or is it just members of this local congregation? So different uh, churches have different statements in that. And, and most of the time it comes from a pure modus because we believe that unworthily partaking of the Lord's Supper, meaning not done in faith in Jesus Christ, that it is a spiritually damaging thing, that it is a thing that is uh, bringing judgment upon yourself. So so John Calvin in Geneva, he was a very strict one for guarding the table. He would get in front of the table and prevent unbelievers from coming to tables. And those unbelievers had swords. But he laid his life on the line because he was wanting to protect them from unworthily partaking the Lord's Supper and profaning what was holy. And so it comes from good motives. So some churches would say that in order for the table to be adequately guarded, it needs to be members of that specific local church only. Someone who the elders or the pastors know, and they know their testimony. They know that they are uh, followers of Jesus. They're not under any sort of church discipline or anything like that. And so they will limit the Lord's Supper to members of that local church only. Some would say it can be Christian. So you don't have to be a member of this church, but you have to be a Christian who is properly baptized. And so if you remember last week, Brian explained what proper baptism looks like. So immersion upon a profession of faith, that unless you have been baptized by immersion upon a profession of faith, um, you cannot come to the table in this church. And then the, uh, the other common position of Baptists is that it's for Christians only, meaning those who have faith professed faith in Jesus, um, and are Christians who are followers of Jesus. And that is our position as a local church, that as long as you are a follower of Christ, that you are walking in a pe- repentance. And, uh, and I believe, uh, Brian's not here to, to confirm this, but, uh, not under discipline from another local church. Um, you are welcome to take the Lord's supper. Um, So that's our position, Christians only. You don't have to be Baptist. You don't have to be from Perimeter Road Baptist Church. But if you're a follower of Christ, trusting in his work, trusting in what these signs symbolize, then you're welcome. And that gets us to the heart of the issue. Why can unbelievers partake the Lord's Supper? The the reason for that is because they do not possess by faith what the elements symbolize. Like what does the body and blood of Jesus mean to someone who is not trusting in that sacrifice, who's not trusting in the work that the body and blood of Jesus accomplished. And if you participate in the body and blood of Christ, which is what 1 Corinthians 10 says we are doing when we take the Lord's Supper, that we are participating mysteriously in the body and blood of Christ. If you're participating in that apart from faith, it can only be a participation to judgment. Right? Anything done, not done in faith is sin, according to the Bible. And as, as ministers, we want to shield you from that and plead with you first to come to Christ in faith and then receive the supper. And so another misconception is that the ordinances are some sort of magical ceremonies. So it's like a good luck charm. It's like um, if you just take the Lord's supper, then somehow you're gonna get a blessing just by doing it. Uh, and this is a concept called ex operato, which means uh, the working of the work. And this is a position of Rome as well, um, that in and of themselves, the, the ordinance or sacraments um, have power uh, to convey grace, whether or not they're received by faith. Just in, so the, the most pagan person can take the Lord's Supper uh, and they automatically get a blessing from that. Uh, that is not um, our position at all. The Bible does not teach that. They do not confer a blessing every time they're performed. They only confer a blessing when received in faith in Christ alone. Do we get that? that? There's nothing in and of the elements itself. That it's, the power is in Christ and in, in faith in him. And so that's why unbelievers cannot take. And, and um, we, we, we limit here at Perimeter, um, who can take the Lord's Supper to Christians only, which is is pretty open, um, in my opinion. So, um, let's see, we got 7.30, so we got a little time. we are got to open up for questions, so if you have any questions, um, feel free to ask. I might not be able to answer all those questions, um, as Brian is not here at the moment, Um, but uh, I'll answer what I can, what you got. All right, good deal. All right, so as I said, this is my prayer that it increases our appreciation of the supper, that, that the next time that we observe that we will come prepared and ready um, to, to, to receive from the Lord, that he would serve us with his body and blood uh, and that we would remember his sacrifice. And so um, I'm gonna pray for us and then... Um, we can hang out and talk, or you can go get your kids. Um, I know they've been having lots of sugar, so I'm excited about that, so. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, we do, we thank you again for your grace. Lord, we pray um, that we would never take for granted the simple things that you put into our life, Lord. uh, Forgive us for being haughty and proud when we think that uh, the ordinary things in our lives are not significant. That something as simple as eating bread and and drinking from a cup, Lord, would be insignificant. Lord, forgive us from that. Lord, that you have met us where the level where we at, where we are at. You have met us, Lord, and so we pray that you would just stir our hearts uh, to be appreciative, to have thankfulness, that we get to participate together as the body of Christ in the blessing of Jesus Himself. So now as we go this week, Lord, may we remember may we remember the body and blood of Jesus, it was broken and poured out for us, that we might be united to Him and have eternal life. So we pray this in His name. Amen.